Okay, good morning, everyone. So, our poor vicar and his wife are on a cruise ship in the midst of this. Yeah, they took that cruise that goes out to Catalina and then down to Encinitas. I don't think they're spending much time on the deck or in the swimming pool. I, I know, poor guy. I think that's how it goes for clergy people. Well, I mean, I'm including the vicars here. You know, you go on vacation, you get sick or you get a storm. or That's just the way it goes, you know. We'll, we'll rest when we're in heaven. So instead of him uh, carrying on with the uh, Minor Prophets series, we'll just do a, a standalone here. And it's going to be just very loosely titled and for you much more than for any online consumption. The Sermon on the Mount as a primer for the season of Lent. That's the broad working title. I'm going to share with you some of the things that I've uh, seen in my study of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Some things that are going to be controversial, maybe even to your own ears, and that's okay. Uh, There's room for that. And if you see it otherwise, please, by all means, make your case. That's what we do as Christians with each other, with the Word of God. The Word of God dominates, not any opinion of man. So we'll take a look at those things, and um, it'll be a little idiosyncratic, what I pick and choose to cover. That's just the way it is. Because if we did the whole Sermon on the Mount, I'd read that. It'd probably take 25, 30 minutes, and I don't know that we'd um, be able to answer any of your questions. I I would kind of commend this as, uh, if this is intriguing to you, this study is intriguing to you, or the things I have to say, a fine exercise to do. I did this myself for a period of time, is just to use as your daily devotion the Sermon on the Mount. Over and over and over again. I can't remember what I did. I think it was basically my daily devotional for about a month, something like that. And um, as one might imagine, that has an effect on your theology, has an effect on your understanding of a sermon. And this is the fullest or most complete sermon of our Lord Jesus that we have in, in the scriptures. So, well, we're spending your time there and absorbing it. Before we get started, let's have invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The first problem with studying the Sermon on the Mount is that it begins with the Beatitudes, and it's very hard to get out of them. <laughs> Could probably spend, there's, think there's, uh, depending on how you count, of course, nine Beatitudes, and I could probably spend nine different hours on the Beatitudes. What I, that's one of the areas that idiosyncratically I want to go rather quickly over, um, and also on account of their being familiar to you. But the Beatitudes, of course, are beautiful, of course, are wonderful, um, and they're subversive. That is a common theme in the Sermon on the Mount, is it's subversive. It counters your expectations. It counters the pious expectations you have. Now, we're so used to the Beatitudes being crocheted or knitted onto pillows and what have you that we see them as sentimental, but they're not really that at all. I mean, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's a shocking statement. 
the impoverished of spirit are the ones who are blessed. That's, don't let the shock of that escape you. I, I mean, next is even crazier to our American ears. Blessed are those who mourn. That seems self-evidently false to us. So I'll simply leave off on my commentary on the Beatitudes uh, with that. They're, they subvert our expectations. They even subvert the religious expectations of the time. Next, Jesus goes on and talks about salt and light, saying, you plural, so speaking of the church, of his disciples, you plural are the salt of the earth, you plural are the light of the world. And again, sermons can be and have been preached on that one concept of salt, or that one concept of being the light of the world. I'll simply, even if idiosyncratically, point out that the key part of the analogy of the salt is not losing its taste. Jesus says, this is what you are, but you need to be careful lest you lose your taste, that which makes you salt. And of course, as his followers, that's going to be him and his teaching. If you lose that, you lose your identity as salt. You become salt in form only, not in substance, and you're just fit for the lesser purposes of salt, namely to be thrown out or trampled under people's feet. Okay, the light of the world is you are not to be hidden, and that's plural. That's the key idea here, to let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, immediately we're going, to find a, we're going to find an idea that only superficially appears to contradict that in Jesus' own sermon. He's going to say, don't do your good works to be seen by men. Here he says, do them to be seen by men. But what's, what's the difference, if you're familiar with these two teachings of Jesus? Here, it is that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify God. So you're doing your good works in such a way that they glorify God, not you. Which is the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees, is they're doing their good works to be seen by men, not to the glory of to the Father, but to the glory of them. Jesus says, truly, they have received their reward. Okay, But this then shows how important, even at the outset, good works are to Christ. That even here in the earliest section, sections of his sermon, he has good works in view. And the purpose of that is evangelistic in nature. Men are going to be drawn by your light shining to the one who is true light. Okay, at 17 and following, I want to slow down just a little bit. And that's to grab a hold of one of the most fascinating questions and concepts of the Sermon on the Mount. And that will help us with our understanding as we move into that section, which will also be the text for Ash Wednesday. uh, When you give alms, when you fast, when you... um, What's the other one now? Pray. (laughs) which is where we'll spend a lot of our time as a primer for Lent, because we're going to look at these as spiritual disciplines, the way the church has looked at them. And um, we're going to spend some time, hopefully you'll share your input on what's worked for you or what you've liked or not liked or tried or not tried. We'll talk about that in some depth as well. So to get us started off then at 
verse 17. And of course, feel free to raise your hand and add some commentary or ask a question, whatever you like. It always works better to have a bit of dialogue. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, when used like this, this is an easy example. Law here would be the five books of Moses and the prophets, the prophetic books of which you're studying with Vicar and the sometimes divided into the major and minor prophets. But this just basically means the Bible, as Jesus says it. I have not come to abolish the Bible. That's a fine translation, really. Okay, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Not to erase what they've said, but to fulfill what they've said. So Jesus himself sees his ministry in perfect continuity with the Old Testament. And he's going to be the climax and fulfillment of those Old Testament writings. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, the smallest marks in the Hebrew script, will pass from the law. Again, there's the Bible, is all he means. Until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, the commandments of the scriptures, look how broad it is. It's not just the Ten Commandments. It's the commandments of the scriptures. Obviously, we'll come to the conclusion, as the fullness of Christ and his message are borne out, that these are the moral commandments of God, and in fact, even more broadly, just the teachings of God. They're not ours to relax. So whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, here's the key verse I want you to zoom in. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the scribes and the Pharisees have a righteousness, but it's not a righteousness that ends up with them in heaven. You need to have a righteousness that exceeds that. Now, here's the quick and fast Lutheran, and by Lutheran I really mean 20th and 21st century Lutheran answer that we're all familiar with. But I'm going to challenge that, not because I think it's wrong, but because I think that that's not what Jesus is saying here. So the typical way in which Lutherans describe this verse or treat this verse is to say, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. They have a moral righteousness that's superior to you. The only way to exceed their righteousness is to have the righteousness of Jesus credited to you. What's the problem with that? Twofold. A, Jesus doesn't think the scribes and the Pharisees are righteous at all. (laughs) There's the first misstep, is to think that their righteousness uh, is, is so superior to ours that we just can't possibly do it. We have to punt to the gospel. Jesus doesn't think so. Look at the way he speaks, and especially will speak, of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. He thinks it's a self-serving righteousness. Second problem with saying, I tell you your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That must be the righteousness of Christ applied to you. If that's true, 
Please show me where Jesus himself teaches that anywhere in the Sermon on the Mount. There's not a single line where Jesus says, so all said and done, or you should certainly conclude that the righteousness, the only righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees is that which I credit to you, my own righteousness credited to you freely and apart from your own works. Now, if you think you see that somewhere in the, and I mean this in good faith, I'm not being snide or rude. If you think you see that somewhere in this sermon, point it out to me. I'd love to take a look at it with you. There's something else going on. Now, before I wrinkle too many brows, how then do I view this as a Lutheran? Jesus, when he's talking in the Sermon on the Mount, the scribes and the Pharisees, is talking about the fruit the fruit of unbelief in the case of the scribes and Pharisees, the fruit of faith in the case of his disciples. But the fruit itself is categorically different. And Jesus isn't interested in telling us about the nature of the two trees. He's interested in comparing the two fruits, knowing that we'll ascertain the difference, that the scribes and Pharisees who reject him in unbelief bear bad fruit, and his disciples who receive him in faith bear good fruit. And I submit to you that that's what he's talking about when he says specifically, your righteousness. Your righteousness, your fruit must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So as you can see, not a threat to the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. Not at all. Just a better exegesis, a better reading of what Christ himself is actually saying. All right, what goes next, depending upon how you count, are either five or six statements of, you have heard it said. Now, who's hearing it and who's saying it? (laughs) Surprisingly, some of what they have heard it said isn't coming from the Bible, but is coming from other sources, even rabbinical sources. So in the backdrop is, effectively, this is your common piety, or this is the common idea of what righteousness is. Let me show you what, in fact, true righteousness is. And again, what you're going to see is Jesus doesn't say, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, Okay, but I tell you, and then he tightens it down, anyone who's angry with his brother without cause or calls him a fool, etc. But in the end, the righteousness that supersedes this is the righteousness that I give by faith. He never says that. He doesn't say that in any of these next sections. So, worth keeping that in mind in passing. Now, if you look at 21, you have heard that it was said, that has to do with anger or murder, frequently the fifth commandment is referenced, and that's fine. The next you have heard it said comes in 27, you have heard that it was said, and that is uh, lust, or the sixth commandment. The Depending on how you count, at 31, I know in your Lutheran study Bible there's a big break and it says divorce, but notice that, that the linguistic marker has changed. In 31, you get it was also said. So there's, like, do you count that as its own standalone? If you count that one as its own standalone, then Jesus has six statements you have heard that it was said. 
If you count that, as I prefer to, that is a subset of what is begun in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, now he says it was also said. In other words, you should read those two sections as one. They have to do with lust and they have to do with adultery. So I think there's a combination there. It doesn't ultimately matter. That just gives you five, and I think that's what Jesus is up to. We're very familiar with the first two, with anger and lust, as the subsections are given to us. So let's just let's pick up um, a different one. Let's pick up on oaths at 33. And remember what Je- that Jesus' launch point has been, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Again, you have heard that it was said to the old, those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Of course, Christ is that king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply uh, be simply yes or no. Anything more than that or more than this comes from the evil one is a better reading. Okay, so what do you see? If there's two righteousnesses, what, what's the first righteousness? The first righteousness is swear your oaths. Just make sure that you're telling the truth when you swear your oaths. The higher righteousness is don't swear at all. You don't have control over any of these things. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's a contrast between a lower righteousness and a higher righteousness, a righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees who are always swearing by these things, and a righteousness of Jesus' disciples where they don't swear by these things. They just speak the truth unadorned. Yes be yes, no be no. Okay. Another example, then, this would be the fourth, according to my reckoning, at uh, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, this lex talionis uh, is at least derived from the Old Testament scriptures. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Okay, so there's a kind of righteousness that calls for justice. And it's fine insofar as it goes, especially here. It's biblical. It's the kind of the backbone of the natural law and the backbone of the legal system, of the civil rule. But Jesus has an alternative righteousness. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. It's a superior kind of righteousness. Okay? Now, does that make it easy? No. But that's what Jesus is laying out. Two kinds of righteousness. (laughs) In this case, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and the righteousness of his disciples. Two different paths. Two different aspirations. If you're a good scribe or Pharisee, you'd say lex talionis. 
Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and that'd be the extent of your righteousness. Jesus says, I tell you more, and then describes the way in which that takes place. Now, I didn't put any caveats or nuance in the section on oaths. I'm not going to hear. Obviously, there is some. Jesus isn't interested in that. He preaches um, generally, but of course, very specifically, with bombast and absolute kinds of statements. He knows full well that there are caveats and distinctions and conversations to be had. It's just not what he's interested in. He's not interested in reading like... um, a microwave manual or interested in reading like a, a systematics textbook or a dictionary with multiple entries. He's not here to uh, cross all his T's and dot all his I's. He's here to set forth a program in radical contrast to the program of the scribes and the Pharisees. Okay, um, one more and then we'll get into the section that we really want to get into. Um, But I I want you to see how it all flows together seamlessly. So 43 then would be the third um, that we've covered right now. But the fifth and final, you have heard that it was said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, does does that sound like anything in the Bible? It's probably not really traceable to the Bible. Um, The study note points out in 543, um, hate your enemy. Those who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls commanded hatred for the outsider. So this seems to have been a common way of thinking. And there is a certain kind of righteousness in that. But it's a righteousness in fear to that which Christ has come to bring. Thus 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous, or the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Now that's really important. That's really important. It's an overarching theme for Jesus. That if you love those who love you, then that is a kind of righteousness that is inferior to that which he has come to bring. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax, even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect or complete, mature, as your heavenly Father is perfect, complete, mature. That is, like Father, like Son. That's the sentiment. Okay, so your righteousness here, if I can put a little spin on it, your righteousness has to exceed that of the tax collectors. (laughs) Your righteousness has to exceed that of the Gentiles. And these are limits to the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. They're no more righteous than the tax collectors and Gentiles. That's what Jesus is here saying. Okay. So again, back to 
Chapter 5, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on in all of these five sections to show an inferior righteousness and a superior righteousness. Not once does he say the righteousness you need is credited to you freely by me on account of faith. It's just not what he's doing here. That teaching is true, but it's not what he's teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, now that'll bring us back to chapter 6, verse 1, where we return to the theme. We just take a different angle on it. Beware of practicing your righteousness. So we hear that in 520. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, beware of practicing your righteousness. So is Jesus talking about a righteousness of faith here? No, it's specifically a righteousness of doing practicing, doing is the verb, um, your righteousness. So beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So that the latter part of that verse needs to be read in contrast, of course, as we already did, with chapter 5, Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here, be careful, beware, be on guard against practicing doing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. If your good works are done unto the glory of the Father, they get glorify the Father, there's a reward. If they glorify you, that is your reward, and no further reward from the Father. So then, what does it mean to practice righteousness? Well, Jesus gives three concrete examples. So that's verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, is that practicing your righteousness? Yeah, Absolutely. And it's a win, not an if. (laughs) Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Now, I'm not all that familiar with what their practice was, but apparently um, a trumpet, you could, you know, look, the offering's going in, blow your horn, okay? And you, I mean, you could see how this would be, like, maybe a good idea, Uh, like, superficially, Hey, look, so-and-so's giving. That's great. Blow a trumpet. Everybody's happy. Let's keep blowing trumpets. Let's keep getting, you know, it's like an ancient version of a telethon or something. The phones keep ringing. More and more money's coming in. Keep those phones ringing. Keep those horns blowing. Now, there's nothing wrong with um, giving. And, of course, um, as they would give to the synagogues, a portion of that would go to the poor. Just as we give to the churches, a portion of that goes to the poor. Um, You can also give directly to the needy, and this is often called giving of alms. It's distinct from, um, well, so if you're giving to the synagogue, uh, and then the synagogue's giving to the the poor, that's one way in which, of course, you're giving your alms, and it's combined with your tithe or your offering, okay? And that, of course, happens in churches today as well. Uh, At Faith here, um, at least 10%. Uh, of our of what we receive goes on to other organizations, many of them helping uh, the poor or helping missionaries who to fund them, they themselves being the poor ones uh, to whom the alms are being given. 
Um, but of course, none of this precludes the idea of almsgiving to the poor that you might encounter in your life. And I know we're all reticent in our current context to give to the guy on the street or the guy who approaches you um, in, the, in the grocery store parking lot because more often than not, they're dishonest. They're just, you know, they're going to take your money and then go jump in their BMW. So what are some ways in which we can give alms? Because our Lord says, when you give alms, when you give to the poor. And I think one of the ways we can do that is even in our own midst, in our own congregation, in keeping with that scripture, um, do good first to those of the household of God and second to those outside. Um, We can look and see needy people within our own congregation or needy people in our own uh, neighborhood, those outside, and um, make a concerted effort to give something meaningful there. You know who they are. They're not scamming you. Um, you can bless them with the giving of alms, even anonymously. Even anonymously. Um, at Christmas time, there are um, members in our congregation who will give me cash to distribute as needed. That's how it's anonymous. So I, I take those envelopes, I add them all up, I identify families that are, um, you know, they can, they can use some extra bucks, and um, here you go. So that's um, just an idea of how that can be practiced in a way. Um, of course, so as you're looking toward Lent, we are using this as a, as a primer for Lent. You're thinking, how am I going to give alms? Now, in the ancient world, it was, all things were more simple. So as you don't fast, you don't have a bunch of refrigerators or freezers or anything. So as you, as you fast, I should say, as you don't eat, there's an immediate financial extra amount that you have. That was typically then the alms that you gave. So I'm not going to, so I'm going to skip these meals, whatever I didn't, you know, the bread that I didn't go buy in the marketplace. Now I'm going to give to someone else. So there's that concrete, tangible connection, um, not only to giving, as Christ says, but to giving and fasting together. We have to be a little more creative with that, um, especially because the cost of our meals fluctuate so much. You can, you can eat a meal at home for a couple bucks, or you can go out to the Cheesecake Factory or something and spend $30 on an entree. Uh, so it takes some thinking. Um, if you're going to connect to that in some meaningful way with your fast, you don't have to. So just the idea and practice of giving alms. Now, when you're giving alms, as we're going to see with fasting, as we're going to see with prayer, when you're giving alms, you're also crucifying within yourself, the old man. What things are you crucifying, would you say? Greed! The obvious one, greed. So the idea that I need to hoard and have just in case, and then with that, kind of the control and the, maybe the pride and the competition. Um, yeah, so I think that those are good things. Um, almsgiving also by the gift of freely giving something, it's kind of a, a deeper point, but, when, but it's actually a testament to grace. Because when you give something, you're giving something to someone who hasn't necessarily earned or deserved it. Here you go, it's a free gift. So it's an exercise of that free gift of salvation that, that it has been given to you. It's at the core of our lives as Christians in our standing before God that Um, We stand on the basis of what he's given, Christ, the ultimate gift to the poor. 
And then on that behalf, we bless others, whether they're, especially if they're unworthy, right? So here you go. Okay, so some thoughts on almsgiving and some thoughts on how concretely to put that into place. Um, in our life, if you're, you know, if you're looking at it, you would think of it as different than your offering that you give. There's no commandment in the New Testament to tithe. That's been frequently abused as, okay, well, so we can all get away with less. <laughs> I think what God has in mind, of course, cheerful giving, um, but if, if possible, that you would even give beyond a tithe, that you would think of the tithe as the bare minimum. I know that's not possible for everyone. I get that. So if God loves a cheerful giver, give what you're able. But alms would be seen, generally speaking, as separate than that. So that may be TMI, but that's at least pastorally and personally as a Christian how I look at it. What I give to the church for the support of the gospel is one thing. What I give specifically to others is another. So... Okay, um, now what is to be avoided um, that you don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others? So that's the key is as we give away that we not do so to be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, um, the attention they've gotten, the reputation they have for being a give, you know, this big giver, this big generous person. Here's the contrast. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. <laughs> that's how, that's how um, thoughtless of it you want to be. You don't want to meditate on, oh, I did this thing. You want to do it and be done with it and move on in your mind. So that if you were even reminded of it, you'd be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> but otherwise, it doesn't enter your mind. It's not something you meditate on. I think that's... I mean, obviously, Jesus has his wonderful and hyperbolic way of speaking here, not to let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, um, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So look, when you practice your righteousness, now contrast that with the Pharisees' righteousness. The Pharisees' righteousness, blow a trumpet, <clears throat> everyone here, look, clinking in my coins, okay? Everybody pay attention. That's the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. As Jesus says at the beginning, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. So what does is, what is the practice of your righteousness, 6.1, look like? Giving in secret, giving without letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Giving in such a way that people receive it as a gift and have no one to give thanks to but God. Okay, So two different righteousnesses contrasted there. All right, any thoughts you have on almsgiving? Yes, sir. I was just looking at uh, Isaiah, just on the general subject of fasting. I was just looking at Isaiah um, 58.3, mm. mm-hmm. and um, at right about 58.3, he's talking about fasting superficially. Yeah. And then he gets to true fasting, which has to do with almsgiving, mm-hmm. 58.7. And I, I thought that seemed relevant, maybe. I, absolutely. I be, um, when warning about abuses of fasting, I think Isaiah 58, if I'm not mistaken, is the chapter, is the part in the Bible that you would go to. Um, because, uh, because our Lord is really upset with the way in which the Old Testament people are fasting. Note, they're all fasting. <laughs> 
but he's really upset with the abuses that have crept in. So I thank you for bringing that up. Um, maybe if maybe if at the end we've got some time, we could just read through this for the sake of the class. And if not, I, I commend it to you um, because it's got all kinds of warnings in there. Uh, there is gain in fasting. And there's nothing to be embarrassed about that. There is gain in prayer. There is gain in giving alms. That's why Jesus, at the end of each of these sections, says your reward will be from God. There is nothing impious about desiring to please our Heavenly Father and receive his blessings. There's just nothing impious about that. I know that it's easy to just like look at that and be like, well, that sounds selfish. Jesus doesn't have that hang up. So there's zero wrong with trying to please God and trying to please him in such a way that he returns um, blessing upon you. Of course. In verse 7 there, 58-7 in Isaiah, he says, Is it not to share? In other words, uh, what's the fasting that I choose that I would have you do? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor to your house? So yeah. it's just like what you're saying yeah. If you refrain consuming something you would normally consume, mm-hmm. then the idea is that you would have that wealth that then you could share with others. Mm-hmm. And you see people living hand to mouth. And so, I mean, that, that again is where it takes some like cultural or. <laughs> yeah application, figuring out, because most of us, at least in this room, don't live hand to mouth in that way. Um, but literally, you, you are withholding bread from your own mouth and taking that bread and giving it to uh, someone else. So I guess if you wanted to get really concrete with it, that would be something you could do is, um, I'm not going to have this meal at Taco Bell, but I'm going to go buy it and give it to the person on the street corner or something. It's, they can hop in there. BMW after having a nice burrito, if that's what they want to do. But at least it's food, and that might even fetch out if they're truly needy or not when you hand them food and they take it and say thank you. So yeah, great example. Um, right, I don't, obviously I don't see any um, contrast between the warnings in Isaiah 58 and what our Lord gives in um, Matthew 6. I know you don't either. So yeah, lots of warnings there that you would fast in such a way that it would be for your aggrandizement in the eyes of others. So doing righteous things so that other people go, wow, that's a real saint. God, God just says you've received your reward. That's it. Everybody thinks you're a saint. The contrast of that isn't, is not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. A certain unconsciousness about it, but also a consciousness of desiring to please God. There's nothing embarrassing or wrong or selfish about that, according to Jesus. So that's, um, that's a good thing to keep in mind. Lord, how, what can I do to please you? Um, and I don't know, maybe you find yourself even praying that way. What would you have me do? <laughs> I find myself praying that from time to time, to say the least. Okay, almsgiving, when you give to the, you give to the needy or the poor. Uh, on to five. And when you pray, again, we're talking about 6-1, when you practice your righteousness. So now, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. So, again, the righteousness of the Pharisees is like this. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. So, instead of like, now, now like it's all protests on the street corners. They'd be standing there and having somebody hold their robe and they'd be, you know, praying. And, 
everyone's driving by and being like, wow, those are real holy people. (laughs) Yeah, Jesus says, not like that. (laughs) They've received their reward. Okay, So um, that's the letter half of five. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, so notice they're both praying. They're both doing a quote-unquote righteous thing, but their righteousness needs to look very different than yours. And if your righteousness doesn't exceed, then you're not part of the kingdom. And so how does your righteousness succeed? How, do you, how, do you, how are your prayers, in God's eyes, objectively better than their prayers? When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I mean, now again, Jesus is speaking. Um, he's not interested in laying out all the cases in which is there anything wrong with praying corporately? Of course not. Is there anything wrong with praying in a church? Of course not. Do you literally have to go lock yourself in the walk-in closet to be heard? No. Okay, but you, but you get the sentiment. Is the others are like, hey, look at me, I'm praying here. And what Jesus would have his disciples do is completely, op- like, I don't need to toot a horn at all to let people know I'm talking to God. The point is I'm talking to God. <laughs> I don't want anybody to see that or know about that. Um, I'm talking to God, that's what matters. And again, look, in the prayer there's reward. Okay, now, the second is the way in which they pray. Now, uh, or excuse me, the, yeah, the way in which they pray. And then the second that starts at seven is the what they pray or the how they pray. So look at seven. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So pagan worship, lots of droning, lots of repetition, lots of flowery speech, lots of words, 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 try to like cajole the gods into doing what they want them to do. Don't be like that. Do not be like them, verse 8. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray like this. Now this would have been shocking and in complete contrast to the pagan world around because this prayer can be said in probably like 12 seconds or something. I've never timed myself. (laughs) But that's the difference. It's super straightforward. It's super simplistic. And it's praying. This is the way the petitions are prayed of the Lord's Prayer with faith that God knows what you need before you need it so you don't have to belabor the point. When he gets to give us this day our daily bread, you don't have to be like, well, not just bread, but actually white bread because the brown bread's disgusting. And and if it wouldn't be too much trouble, a little butter, but the real butter, not the margarine. Honey, but if it could be local honey, and you know, so on and so forth. You don't have to, God already knows what you need, so you can come to him as a child to the Father and just speak straightforward and plain and blunt. And that's what's so beautiful. So um, when you pray, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Um, interesting because also when we pray, our prayers tend to be like, this is what I need and that's what I need and the other thing's what I need, amen. But notice how Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, there's the address or the introduction. Hallowed be your name, next, your kingdom, next, your will. It's completely theocentric as opposed to anthropocentric. There's uh, right off the bat, it's it's like, hey, all my needs or whatever it is that I think I'm worried about doesn't even come close to what's really important, which is that your name would be hallowed, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done. 
on earth as it is in heaven. So that is such a beautiful and rewarding prayer anyway, because it takes all these things that are just absolute crises and of the utmost importance and just world-breaking, and it goes, yeah, no, they're, they're, in the first place, they're not all that important. They're completely secondary to God and what he's doing in the world. That in and of itself is medicinal, because it, it, right off the bat, it shows us that our worries aren't as big as we think they are. Obviously, more could be said. Um, I'm just trying to highlight the contrasting nature, here contrasting explicitly with the Gentiles who are using tons of flowery language and trying to get what they want, And Jesus gives us a very simple prayer where we're praying for what God wants. That his name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Um, I'll just say this, that as Lutherans, we're well versed in that being uh, bread um, to be eaten at mealtimes and then for all the rest. But, and though I don't have time to prove it, in Matthew, it's, it's almost certainly a reference to Jesus, the true bread of life, as much as it is to earthly bread and everything else. So give us this day our daily bread as may I have the fullness of the bread from heaven this day. And of course, earthly bread and everything else that's needful. But um, look ahead. So give us this day our daily bread. Um, 11, look at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. So what then should we be anxious about? Or what then should we seek? Well, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So we're praying for daily bread. I think there's a really good biblical case to say we're praying for the bread of heaven. We're praying for Jesus That's first and foremost seeking the righteousness of God and the kingdom of God. All these other things will be added to us. The, you know, fruit loops for breakfast, the ham sandwich for lunch, the uh, barbecue chicken for dinner. That, That all these things will be added to you. Pray first for the daily bread, which is Christ, and then all the rest with it. Okay. If Jesus thought we were ever going to mature spiritually to the point of no longer sinning, then he made a mistake because he taught us to pray our entire lives, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So he knows that our entire lives will be lives where we need his forgiveness. And so he teaches us to pray this prayer our entire lives. Um, Again, maybe contrary to modern Lutheran piety, forgiveness isn't the first petition. It's almost shocking, isn't it? From, um, as a born and raised Lutheran, my impulse is always to say, Father, forgive me my sins so that you'll even hear or care what I have to say next. Fascinatingly, Jesus doesn't agree with that approach per se. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. But instead, he puts that as rather, uh, what is that, the fifth petition. So down the line is forgive us our debts. There's more immediate, more pressing things. And of course, that's all the more reason to take daily bread as a reference to the bread of heaven. From him flows the forgiveness of sins, and we forgive our debtors as well. Okay, 13, and lead us not into temptation. The sense there is everything is pushing us toward temptation. The devil, the world, our sinful nature, lead us out of it. Be our shepherd and guide us out of temptation. Uh, And 
and or but deliver us from. The evil one is, is in view there. So a very simple prayer in contrast. And that's the second point. So the first point on prayer is um, the manner in which you pray, not to draw attention to yourself. And the second is the what that you pray. Let your prayers be simple, straightforward. And after these words, or at least after the pattern that Christ gives us, because he does say pray then like this. So um, it's not as though that's the only prayer we can pray. Okay, he circles back on forgiveness in 14, which is interesting. He wants to do a little extra teaching. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So this, I know, sounds like threatening to us, but it really shouldn't because the foundation of being a disciple of Jesus is forgiveness. Jesus doesn't look at this as like some extremely hard thing. Are you forgiven all things before God? Yes, you are. Then would you stand before God with your neighbor and say, you know, I think this person should go to hell because of X, Y, If you are, you're not a Christian. Like, I think in Jesus' mind, this is just that simple. It's 101. So it's not like, have I worked through all the emotions? That's, that's not what, what it means to forgive someone. Okay? It's not even like, oh, well, I don't want them to face temporal consequences for their actions. It's not that either. Forgiveness at the level in which Jesus is speaking is, would you, when their time for the judgment comes up and they're standing before God, would you bring an accusation against them? Would you tell God to put them into hell? That's really the question of forgiveness. And I'm not talking about from the standpoint of an office or from the standpoint of some objective. I'm saying they sinned against you. Would you hold that against them unto hell? If so, you're not a Christian. I think that's all Jesus is saying. That's the fundamental root of forgiveness. The rest on top of that is sort of like, yeah, the more you progress in it, the better. But that's not, by definition, what forgiveness is. I mean, God himself forgives us all things, but we may still suffer temporal consequences. So, um, he may still, even though he forgives us all things, may still express a father's discipline and anger toward us. Self-evident. So if these things are true for God, they can be true for us without sin. And aside from the point of forgiveness proper. Okay, any, uh, any thoughts on prayer? So if you're not already as a primer for Lent, the catechism teaches uh, prayer in the morning when you wake up, make the sign of the cross, opportunity for prayer. All of creation is telling you it's time for prayer, isn't it? The sun's rising, the light's coming, it's time to pray. All of creation saying, acknowledge your creator. Um, Mealtimes, of course, as we heard Jesus say, um, mealtimes, time for prayer. Uh, your heavenly Father um, lets, the, lets the sun shine and, and the bread come to uh, the just and the unjust, the good and the evil. So uh, mealtimes are times in which we give thanks to him, not only for his provision for us, but for his provision to those who hate him. It's a miracle and, a, and just a daily example and reminder of his goodness. And then, of course, at the close of the day, the sun's setting, the night's coming, we're commending our hands and in in, we're commending ourselves into the hands of God. We're practicing death via sleep, and that is a fitting time to pray also. So if you don't have that pattern quite down, um, that's a great example and a great pattern from the catechism to build and Lent, and then just don't let it go. 
And then spring cleaning, you need to get back to it, get back to it. If you're already doing that, then consider adding something. So um, uh, maybe a fuller uh, morning or evening, as the catechism says, as you make the sign of the cross, it's um, the creed, the Lord's Prayer, and an additional prayer. Um, you can add in the Ten Commandments, you can add in Scripture, you can do all, add in a psalm, you can, of the adding of things, there is no end. Okay, how about fasting? Now, likewise, in the same vein of... Uh, Yes, sir. I'm sorry, I missed you. Just going to add one thing. Yes, sir. Sing a hymn or two. Mm. Wonderful. Absolutely right. Uh, and the catechism advises that as well. And it's just, it's just great. Remember how the evil spirit was chased away from Saul by David singing? Luther has such glorious things to sing, say about music. You know, Sometimes if you're depressed, um, you've got to pay attention to what you're listening to. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, positively, if you're not listening to anything that's depressing you, listen to something joyful. Um, uh, Pastor Kramer said this, and he, he, you know, he got some heat um, years ago when he said it. He said, you should be listening to Handel's Messiah. And people didn't like that. They, you know, some people didn't like that. They thought it was, but it's fantastic advice. Because the Handel's Messiah is just rich in scripture. It's ultimately uplifting. It, it'll, I mean, when I have to do stuff I absolutely don't want to do, you can usually tell because I've got Handel's Messiah on in the background. <laughs> it's just glorious. Um, the music is, Luther says, second to scripture. Music um, lifts us up and fills us with joy and all the blessings and benefits of God. So, yeah, thank you for that. Seeing a hymn, combination of music and the word of God. We have always have um, uh. likes of playing country hymns. Country hymns, I like it. I like it. Yeah, we're so blessed that you can just. Oh yeah, absolutely. There you go. Constant music. My my wife puts it on because the kids are all cranky in the morning, and she puts on some kind of, and they're all like, yeah, they get all calm. It's great. <laughs> yeah, please. I just just expand it just a little bit. Uh, yeah, listen to the Messiah and memorize it. Absolutely. Memorize it. It's all. It's not just part. It is all scripture. Yeah, it's all scripture. I agree. All scripture. It it takes you through a journey. Yeah, and I bring that up. At, I bring From that up at beginning to end. All the highlights of scripture as what is is what is sung, and and, and sing it. Because the first half is basically the prophecies of the Incarnation and what we think of as Advent and Christmas and the birth, even into Epiphany a little. And then the second half is the Passion, Crucifixion, and Resurrection. So as we come into uh, Lent, I mean, we're coming, Easter's so early, we're coming right out of Christmas, it feels like. And here we are at the, so all the more fitting then, because Handel's Messiah is going to go right into the Passion, Crucifixion, Do it at least once a month. <laughs> That's your prescription. I like it. Okay, I've got to cut it short just so we get to fasting here um, because that, that's a key part of Lent. And um, we'll see this. The gospel text for the first Sunday in Lent is the temptation of Jesus. And the temptation of Jesus, we were talking about just before class, he's fasting for 40 days, he's praying continuously. And he's battling the devil. And that's a wonderful template for the 40 days of Lent. In fact, probably that's where it came from. So the 40 days of Lent, uh, paralleling the 40 days of Jesus. So we follow him in fasting, though not so extreme as he, um, in prayer, though not so wonderful as he, and in battling the devil. Um, remember, uh, the devil comes to him. So we don't go pursuing the devil. The devil will come in due time, especially as you're fasting and praying. 
and it's time to rebut him with the word of God. Okay, so fasting then we'll zoom in on. By the way, before I forget, there is a recent, like within the last couple months, um, some of you are familiar with the Goddess Dienst uh, crowd. So they've got a podcast, and um, I think I, I've got it on Spotify. I don't know where else it is. I don't even know how that stuff works. My phone plays it for me. But um, so find it wherever you like. But it's the Goddess Dienst crowd, TGC. That's how you'll find it, is TGC. And it's episode 337. 337. It's called Hunger for God. And it's this pastor I had never heard of um, before, but he's a brilliant little, uh, uh, he's got a brilliant little statement on, um, a brilliant, brilliant little episode, I mean, on um, fasting, hunger for God. Pastor Ian Kenny, and he's just, he seems to be a great guy, seems to be real, real intelligent, real knowledgeable. But he traces fasting all the way through the scriptures. I mean, it just kind of blew my mind in seeing things that I hadn't seen. Real clear distinctions, real wonderful treatment of fasting. And so on that vein more generally, um, faith, as I mentioned in the, in the adult Bible class, we'll have a corporate fast this year that you can join in on or not. You can lighten it or make it more strict or stringent depending upon your abilities. You can ignore the whole thing because that's not what you do. Um, but I would encourage you that if you're tempted to just ignore it and say, we're Lutherans, we don't fast, um, to listen to this about hour-long section by Pastor Ian Kinney hunger for God, it'll change your mind. I can just about guarantee you that. And it'll actually inspire you, especially if you're kind of, I was not looking forward to Lent this year because I don't really want to fast. <laughs> it's a pain to get into. Um, but I listened to this episode and I'm inspired. I'm ready to go. Getting excited about it. Okay. Yes, please. Yeah. Sure. Well, the corporate fast that we're going to do here to collectively at Faith is a really easy one. So I think you could just jump into it. But there is some wisdom in, hey, skip a meal here or there just willy-nilly, right, to kind of prepare yourself. Um, but just to lay it out, and there will be more information coming. Here isn't the place to lay the whole thing out. But it's been traditional, even since the first century, for Christians to fast on Wednesdays and, Thursdays, or Wednesdays and Fridays. And in fact, in most times and most places, it's a year-round fast on those days. That, that can vary, but the way our fast will look, um, as proposed, will just be eat your dinner on Tuesday night, and then don't eat again till Wednesday night. Just a one-day fast. Um, you're fasting on, on, and that's like, well, what is that technique? Whenever you eat dinner, or at, even after 3 o'clock, because our Lord... Um, Died at 3 o'clock, um, just a reminder of that. And then the same thing, you know, let your Thursday night meal be your last meal until Friday night. So, but Plus, it's just great. I mean, it even, like, we've got our soup supper on Wednesdays. It's just fast, and then come have soup supper and f- let your body relax and then be fed with the Word of God at the service. Great. And then Friday, you know. Have a, have a celebratory, have a nice little meal there. There's all kinds of ways you can get strict, um, but that's why I'm telling you about this, uh, Ian Kenny. Um, you can make it harder, you can make it easier. Um, if you're uh, diabetic or have medical conditions, skip it. If you're a little kid, skip it. My little kids aren't going to be fasting. No way. I'm not going to put up with that. <laughs> uh, when they get a little older, they can. After puberty, they can. 
um, but not right now. Um, and then women who could become pregnant or are pregnant, skip it. Um, if you're going through some kind of mega stress or health issue in your life, skip it. Um, and this is all there's precedent for all of this. If the fast needs to be broken because your wife um, forgot that you were fasting and brought you uh, a Subway sandwich for lunch, you eat the Subway sandwich. You don't because love for your neighbor is more important than your fast. So uh, Pastor Kinney goes through all these rules. I commend that to you. And, and I'll write something up for our newsletter um, in this vein too. So verse 16 When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Again, this is the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. They fast, but they fast in such a way to draw attention to themselves. So when you fast this Lent, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces. You know, they walk around with frowny faces. um, That their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you, of course, my disciples, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. What does that mean? Conduct yourself like you normally would. <laughs> take, take a shower, bathe. <laughs> Don't look like, oh, woe is me, I skipped lunch. <laughs> right? So um, just go about your business. Anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward in secret. Okay, we're in our last seconds here. So laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven flows exactly from this. If we had another 15 minutes, I'd go right through that with you. But for our purposes, the final tie-in would be verse 33 that we looked at again. So not to worry about what we will eat or what we will drink, or about the concerns and cares of this life, but rather, as he says in verse 33, to seek first the kingdom or reign of God and his righteousness, which I would submit to you in the context of the sermon, if this sermon was the only thing you had, his righteousness is righteousness found through faith in Christ, then that manifests itself in these fruits which are very distinct because they're good fruit from the good tree, very distinct from the bad fruit of the bad tree, namely the unbelieving scribes and Pharisees and their works that are self-aggrandizing and nothing more. So, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All the other things your father knows you need, all these other things will be added to you. The Lord be with you.